0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. If you've been listening for long, you're probably aware that there are many different ways to do therapy. Learning about these different methods is often, at least for me, both conceptually interesting and practically useful. They often have these actionable insights into our minds or our behavior and can provide a kind of roadmap for understanding ourselves and working with our material. One of the forms of therapy that I've been the most interested in since learning about it is internal family systems therapy, or IFS. IFS is a model of therapy that recognizes that while we might experience ourselves as being one unified self most of the time, we all have these different characters or different parts that kind of run around inside our heads. Maybe there's a part of you that keeps the trains running on time and helps you stick to your commitments. Maybe there's another part or an aspect of you that's extremely self-critical, a kind of negative voice inside of the head. Then maybe countering it, there's this more nurturing part, this aspect that helps you fill yourself up when you're not feeling so great. We're all constellations of parts, and this can sound a little cognitive, but there's another aspect as well, an aspect that lives inside of the body our physical experience of ourselves and the world. All of that is why I'm so happy to be joined by the person who literally wrote the book on somatic internal family systems, Susan McConnell. Susan is a certified IFS therapist and senior trader for the IFS Institute and has taught internal family systems both in the United States and around the world since 1997. She developed the somatic IFS approach, which is also known as embodying the internal family which is a synthesis of her 40 years of study, teaching, and clinical practice. It brings together bodywork, psychotherapy, and even some aspects of contemplative practice. Her new book, Somatic Internal Family Systems Therapy, Awareness, Breath, Resonance, Movement, and Touch in Practice, came out late last year. So Susan, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Forrest. I really am I know this sounds almost trite, but I truly am honored. I think this podcast that you're doing, Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, being well, I mean, it's what we all want, right?
0: Yeah, well, thank you. That's such a warm reflection. I really appreciate that.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, it really comes from my heart. And although right now it's you and I speaking, I'm also aware of all the people that you reach and who will be listening to this. And Mm. and it just really, I mean, I just really, you know, with the somatic IFS, right? Like I, I do enjoy being aware of what's happening in my body moment by moment. And I just feel tingles and I feel my heart really opening and getting bigger to know that we're reaching people who are just desiring a deeper level of wellness and not just for themselves, but also to be able to spread that, you know, to bring that to other people. If we ever didn't realize how globally connected we are with every being on this planet, we know it now, right?
0: Yeah. There's nothing like a pandemic to throw into very harsh relief how interconnected we all are. And what a wonderful uh, kind of summary and introduction to the conversation as well, Susan. I really appreciate it. Like that was such a warm reflection.
1: And I was what I was about to say was that I appreciated your introduction. Hmm. I think you you said more than I expected. You actually gave a little mini teaching about the IFS model.
0: Yeah, I was going to kind of cue you into it, but I thought I would just sort of get started there. I would love to kind of start at the beginning with you and sort of go from there. So I gave, as you said, kind of a little rundown of the basic premise of it, but obviously you know it in much more detail than I do. And for people who aren't familiar with it, what's this internal family systems model?
1: Well, like you said, the the basis of the model assumes that we're not a unified personality, but we are um, multiple. And that is how we talk. Mm. What I appreciated about learning from Dick Schwartz back in the 90s, was that he had, around the same time that I was exploring different types of movement and body work and different therapies, you know, Dick was getting his PhD in structural family therapy and then trying it out and finding Mm. limitations to it. And he, what I really admired about him is that when faced with ways that what he had learned in school hadn't worked, he just sat down and brought his curiosity as well as his compassion to listening to his clients who were talking about, well, a part of me actually at the time he was working a lot with bulimic patients.
2: Mm-hmm. And again, a theory
1: was that if you heal the family, then the symptom and the one person in the family will, you know, will become better. And he found that oftentimes that wasn't the case. Yeah. So he would sit down with the patient, usually a woman with some eating disorder. And she would usually say, well, a part of me is, you know, feels I'm fat. Another part of me is disgusted with myself and another part of me, just says, what the heck, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And another part of me is full of despair that I just, nothing is helping me. And another part of me is just really so angry at my parents. And anyway, he would just listen. And then he began, because of his training, began to conceive of internal family, right? It wasn't just Mm a, so he, he applied this and integrated his knowledge into his connections with people. And Spread out to work with a lot of people with trauma and different kind of attachment wounds and found that this approach of just really helping people get in touch with their parts and developing too, like realizing that not only are these disparate parts, but these parts have relationships mm. with each other in the same way that families will play different roles within a family, but they will also either ally with each other or polarize with each other in order to kind of right the balance, you know, in a boat, you know, like if you lean too much that direction, I have to lean in this other direction. And then there were like coalitions of parts that kind of hung together against other coalitions of parts, which were on the other side. And so he became very fascinated with that and then realized as he would ask the parts to step back and ask, how do you feel towards that part? because that has turned out to be a very important question not just oh i have this part and i have that part but like how am i feeling towards that part and what he realized was that there was something beyond the parts that's really an essential quality of each one of us which they called they'd say no this isn't really a part it feels different somehow I, mm. it's really myself
2: mm, mm-hmm. so he
1: began to call it self the self the energy of the self the with a capital s he used a capital s to distinguish it from What many therapies use to describe the self is really the whole coalition of parts, you know, the the whole constellation of parts. But once he realized that every single one of us, it doesn't matter how wounded they have been, how little support they've gotten in their lives, every single one of us has the self. Sort of like a good analogy that works for me is even on the cloudiest days, we know that the sun is up there, right? Mm -hmm. It might be obscured. And maybe we haven't seen it for days, but we know that the sun is there and eventually it will emerge as the clouds part. The sun is there. In fact, the sun itself allows us to see the clouds.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so he began to develop and learn from his clients really ways to allow the sun to shine through on the parts, allow the self to be present.
0: So you're speaking to this kind of distinction, right, between the capital S self, as opposed to just thinking of the in quotation marks, maybe self, how we normally use it in psychotherapy to just refer to all of our bits and pieces, you know, so how is that kind of distinct?
1: The self, the self energy is um, always there. Hmm. And the parts all have a positive intention. Mm -hmm. And many of the parts, it's hard to see that because many of the parts show up first as being very obviously really being destructive or really an obstacle to people's living the way they'd like to be living. So it makes a lot of sense that you have one part that perhaps is causing you to lose your job every time, you know, and you don't even know why, but you just can't be successful at what you want to be successful at because parts keep getting in the way. Maybe a part that gets either too passive and doesn't do the job you're supposed to be doing or on the opposite side of it gets belligerent and defends yourself and ends up, you know, irritating your boss and then you get fired. So we all of us have parts like that that are either extreme or not, but when you get to know the parts, they it turns out they all have a positive intention. Mm, uh-huh. They're really trying to keep us from, you know, maybe the more belligerent parts or aggressive parts are trying to keep us from getting stepped on like we did as kids and maybe the more passive ones learned somewhere along the line that it's better to keep a low profile and not, you know, keep yourself out of harm. But when the parts separate out enough that the sun can shine, we can bring self-energy to the part and just get curious about it. Like, why do you do what you do instead of criticizing it or trying to get rid Mm -hmm. of it? Many therapies just really might be oriented to trying to, let's try to suppress this too passive part or this too belligerent aggressive part let's just try to push it down not let it take over and the parts will do that for a little while but they really need our compassion and our curiosity mm. and they need us to really say okay i'm aware of you tell me show me yourself so the self can witness the part and it's like well yeah well i you know my dad beat me up and i had learned it you know it's like oh i get it of course that's what you do I'm describing parts right now that are kind of more in a protective function. Mm -hmm. But it turns out when those protectors feel trusted by the self energy of the therapist or the self energy of their friend or the self energy within themselves, then the protector part usually backs off enough that you get a sense of the pain underneath that, the vulnerability. Like, oh, you were beat up. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then, you know, and then there's usually some emotions, some tears or some, you know, trembling or whatever. And as the part shows or tells its story, the more vulnerable part shows and tells its story. And whatever burdens it accumulated during that painful time, usually in early childhood, of course, then we in the IFS model, we found a way to help the part, this vulnerable part, let go of its burden But it always begins with establishing a relationship with it. So when you ask what's the distinction between a part and self, Mm -hmm. the self that can have a truly healing relationship with the part. Mm. Other parts are kind of like an 11-year-old trying to manage a five-year-old, you know, which doesn't go too well, you know, for...
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to kind of see if I can paint a picture of this real quick so that people can kind of get a sense of it really intuitively inside of their own experience. Good. If you're listening, you might already totally understand this, which is great, but the way that it can kind of come through for me sometimes is that when I'm unconsciously moving through the world to use a certain kind of word when I'm not being as mindful of my behavior, of my thoughts, of things like this, I can find myself falling into these very automated routines. And sometimes the way that those routines are associated is that I might have like a Somebody's invited me out to do a thing, and I'm constructing all of these reasons that I can't go out and do that thing. I feel uncomfortable with it, or, oh, maybe I don't like some aspect of them, or I'm getting into this whole rigmarole. And I'll have these little moments where there's a part of me that kind of wakes up, if you will, or maybe my more conscious self kind of wakes up. And I can watch myself going through that whole process. And it's like, Mm. Forrest, why are you doing this? Mm. And then you can engage in more of that inquiry around, wait, what are some of the structures inside of me that are leading me to these behaviors that are not actually really supportive of what I really want to do or what I really want to be out in the world. So that's maybe a way where some of this, like people might be able to have an experience of that. Is that more or less accurate, Susan? Or are there other ways that people might be able to start touching this experience of these different parts as opposed to the self?
1: No, I think that's a really good description. Hmm. In IFS lingo, I guess how we language things is what you described is very typical for us to be More or less blended is what we would say apart. It just takes over. It's like, I don't want to do that. Mm. And someone that says, well, is that a part of you? No, it's just me. I just don't want to go. I don't want to do that thing.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally.
1: And then, like you say, something can happen. And again, like the sun breaking through in a way to use an analogy, but something can happen oftentimes just on our own, but sometimes with the compassion of another person or the curiosity of another person, just say, well, tell me more about why you don't want to do that. And then you get like a little bit of a distance. And in that, what we would describe in IFS, we would say, well, then you're, you're, yourself is here, present with that part of you who doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And you can begin to get a little bit of a little space from that part. And it's really awareness. You're like, oh, that's a, kind of a, a pattern I have. It's kind of a habit that I tend to not want to do stuff like that. What is that about? And in that moment, you have choice, right? You get a little bit of space in there. You have a little bit of awareness. And you have a choice to either just go, well, I could just follow my habit. I could follow that pattern of just, you know, doing what I usually do. Or I could be curious about what am I really afraid of? You know, which is another kind of one of the magic questions we ask. How do you feel towards that part? Well, I am a little curious. Mm -hmm. Good. That's a Mm -hmm. good start. And then what's your part afraid of if you were to actually go to that thing? It's usually got some very, very understandable fears, right? Right.
0: Yeah, totally. Absolutely. You've made mention here a couple of times of different kinds of parts that might emerge, and I've sort of spoken to them very generally. You used a word earlier, a protector part. What are some of the common parts that people tend to have? Understanding that, of course, we're all you know unique snowflakes and all of that good stuff, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. kind of inside of the constellation of the self, what are some of the stars that tend to pop up pretty frequently?
1: Yeah. Well, simply put, I like to say there are kind of two basic categories. There's the ones that protect, mm-hmm. like the guard dog, ready to defend in all kinds of different ways to make sure that nobody breaks into the house or steals the baby, right? And then you've got the vulnerable parts, the ones that need the protection, the ones that you know are the crying, screaming baby or the lonely toddler or the ashamed, frightened four-year-old. Or even the 11 year old whose parents separated, or the traumatized 16 year old who was molested. Or anyway, so those vulnerable ones, whatever their age, then have other parts that come up that try to make sure that will never happen again. So that's the simplest delineation of the types of parts. It can be broken down a bit. First of all, the protectors usually have two basic categories. One one category of protector are what we call managers. And that's what they do. They try to manage the everyday life. They try to make sure that the bad things that have happened to that person in the past don't ever happen again. And they have all kinds of ways to do that. They might be critical. They might be critical of the person or of other people. They might be super controlling. They might even be caretaking. Some of them seem to be doing activities that Generally speaking, like even for example, like well, eating obviously, like I mentioned, working with people that had eating disorders, eating is something that nourishes us, but taken to an extreme and a behavior that's not used from a place of self energy, it can actually kill. So, even like exercise, exercise is great, but some people will overdo it as a way to yeah. protect themselves from feeling bad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Meditation can even be, you know, it's a wonderful thing to do, you know, and yet. Any spiritual practice or body practice or thing which could be used for wellness can be misused by our parts to our detriment. So anyway, those are kind of the two main categories I described managers, but there's another category that are kind of more like the escape artists or the parts that douse out the fire so it doesn't burn the house down. And those parts use addictions Mm -hmm. and they also use dissociation. And just numbing us out or distracting us or, you know, so those kind of take us out while the managers are busy, really trying to make sure we stay in between, you know, we don't color outside the lines. And, you know, many of our performance parts mm-hmm. and then the exiles, basically the ones that are the vulnerable ones mm-hmm. that carry mm-hmm. most of the pain. I mean, they all carry wounds, but the ones that are protecting, you know, the ones that the guard dog is trying to care for, they're often young And once unburdened, they become their true nature. I mean, all of these parts have an essential true nature that they are longing to have restored to them. And that's really the good news of this is the purpose is not just to uncover all these parts with pain, but to help them all let go of their burdens of pain so they can be restored to their original inherent purpose. So the vulnerable hurt ones can become very fun loving and playful and creative and the protectors can become just kind of more practically leading the day-to-day life of us. They can help us keep track of time, you know, and they can help us, mm-hmm. yeah, just all the things that we need, right?
0: So I want to flag something that you said a second ago, because I think it's probably germane to this audience, where you were referring to meditation as being something that you could overindulge in. And there might be people who hear that and they go, ah, oh, meditation, how could you possibly overindulge in that? But there's actually this term that I'm sure you're familiar with, which I think was coined by John Wellwood, but mm-hmm. I, I want to give that attribution correctly. That may or may not be quite right. It's called spiritual bypassing. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. basically that we can use spiritual practices or contemplative practices, mindfulness, meditation, self-help, frankly, psychology, whatever, as a way to kind of avoid facing. content inside of us that we are made most uncomfortable by. So it's effectively another form of distraction or dissociation. We've talked about disassociation on the podcast in some detail in the past that can get us around needing to truly face our demons sometimes by making us feel like we're really enlightened or elevated or skillful inside of this other arena. Other people use it in different ways, but it's actually a pretty well-known phenomenon that I'm sure you're quite familiar with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And You know, I think it's just good for all of us to just to bring awareness to anything we're doing. It's like the example that you used about like really feeling a resistance or reluctance to doing something. Mm. I mean, that might be something that you want to act on. Like, you know, I really feel like I don't want to do this and it's okay. It's not really like being led by our parts is not necessarily bad. So after a busy day at work, maybe you want to just flip on the TV or have a beer or just, you know, read a good book or even a a trashy book, you know, like none of that is judged really. It's just like, well, this is what you need to do right now. But at a certain point when you're realizing that your life is really led by your parts and not by a more choiceful, like who you truly are, Mm. you know, why you're here, you know, what your purpose is and being here. And And just your basic, I love that, you know, being well, you know, is this really leading to your well-being or not? Yeah. And for the most part, meditation does lead to our well-being. What I flashed on when I was listening to you, Forrest, was Mm -hmm. the first time I went on a week-long meditation retreat, I flew in the airport and I was picked up by one of the people living at the Zen Center. And I got in the car and we drove, say, you know, 40 minutes or so to get back to the retreat center. And he didn't say a word to me. He didn't speak at all. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's probably on a silent retreat. And here he had to leave his silent retreat and enter this crazy world of traffic and airports. And and I just felt so grateful. And, you know, I was trying to be respectful and not say anything to him. And then when I I got there and I mentioned this to my Zen master and I said, wow, you know, this person to pick me up at the airport, you know, I'm really sorry if I interrupted his silent retreat. She goes, there's no silent retreat going on. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, well, he didn't say a word to me. And she was like, oh, for goodness sake, you know, like some people who are drawn to this work, you know, just use it as an excuse to not have to be at all sociable. you know."
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so that was like a really great learning for me, you know, about it was a good excuse for him to not really work on whatever was keeping him frightened and isolated from other people. Mm. And perhaps it was a path. Perhaps it was a step on his path. And I can only hope that he got enough of the support living at the Zen center, as well as hopefully a little push to stretch himself a bit to face his terror or whatever it was. In fact, actually, the same Zen teacher, Bobby Rhodes from the quantum school, told me that when she was like in her 20s and was just learning and studying was desantanim, and she was having some difficulties and went to her teacher saying, I'm struggling with this feeling of that, or when he said, well, do 500 more bows every day. And so she did that, and she finally realized that isn't helping me at all. You know, she obeyed him, she listened to his advice, which usually took her to a good place, and she realized that wasn't helping. And so then she found herself a really good therapist in town, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what she needed. Yeah. yeah. So again, it's like we we find there's all these so many more wonderful things every year, right? And these wonderful paths are available to us and we just need to be choiceful about them, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's a lovely summary of a very broad territory of material. So thank you for that, Susan, that you really encapsulated and I think really wonderfully there. Sort of returning to the IFS model and this process that we go through with this feeling that, okay, there is this capital S self that's sometimes at the wheel, sometimes not at the wheel of the car, of that unified spaceship that we are as humans, uh-huh. fleshy sacks uh-huh. moving through the world.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
0: then there are all these other personalities that maybe they're in the backseat, maybe they're in the shotgun, maybe they're driving the car. How can we start to get a better awareness of the different major parts that exist inside of us so that we can start to kind of interact with them more effectively?
1: What a good question. And I really also like that other analogy you just brought in that I often use (laughs) with with my clients, which is, you know, who's driving the car, right? Because quite often it's someone who shouldn't be having a license, you know, Mm, and yet they're mm -hmm. calling all the shots. Totally. And while self is in the car, but it's, you know, locked up and put in the back seat Mm. and perhaps with duct tape over its mouth. So (laughs) so we bring awareness to who is driving the car and just realize that we're going to, do so much better in our lives if we can have self behind the driver's seat, Mm. calling the shots, really leading the system Mm -hmm. from a place of harmony and compassion. Our parts show up in many ways. Mm. And this kind of leads me a bit into somatic IFS, which I also know you want me to speak about today. Yeah, please. Our parts, and again, it kind of depends on each individual. So some of us have parts that show up as an image some of my patients have even described in great detail the part. Other parts don't have much of a visual image at all, but they may be here. Or it might even be quite, you know, my part is saying, you know, I won't go there. I refuse. You know, I'm not going to, you know, or like, oh, I'm just too scared. Or, or I I'm think I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to fail or something like that. So we might hear them. It might be more of a vague sense. It might be that the part just shows us a memory. Like when you say, well, what do you think would happen? And then boom, you just see, oh, that's, that's what you're afraid of. You don't want that to happen again. But you know, what I've found is that many of us have parts that show up first in the body as a body sensation. Perhaps it might even show up as an illness or a body symptom, or it might show up as a movement. It might be a repetitive habitual movement or an impulse to move. And yeah, like I said, there's many reasons for that. Sometimes the injury that happened to us was before we had words. It might have even been in the womb or it might have been during birth or in the for infancy or the first few years of life before it could really be articulated or the wound. It might be something that happened when we had the possibility of narrative memory and had the words to describe what happened. But it might be that we were told, don't tell anyone, or it just felt unspeakable. No one would understand, or we tried to explain it and no one really got it. And somehow the words, or maybe even the images, are just not available to us. But in our culture, we have so separated out for hundreds of years, we've separated out mind and body. And for myself, all along, I just, even back in the 80s, you know, when mind and body were almost never found on the same book title, yeah. you know, or, you know, just were not put together, we just kept them so separate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I just somehow knew that that was not right. I knew that somehow they needed to be brought together. And so much of my professional career was really trying to integrate the two. Now we have a lot, you know, we're, we're really beginning to find a marriage between mind and body. Even when I listened to your introduction, you said, you know, we have a bunch of different parts like rolling around in our minds, you know, and Mm. I wanted to go, yes, and they're in our bodies, you know, (laughs) when when I was doing, uh, when I was doing body work, I was so aware that when I was touching into the tissues, into the fashion of the muscles and making contact with my hands on a person's body, I was so aware that I was touching into their emotional wounds as well to the whole experience that they're carrying There's a reason why that fascia tightened up, you know, it's like a part of the protection It's part of the pain that has to be contained or controlled or, Mm
2: -hmm. or Mm -hmm.
1: nothing let out again, or it might even be a symptom might be the body's way of trying to say, help me, I'm in pain, I can't express this pain any other way. And as we bring that again, I keep using the two words compassion and curiosity there's confidence in there too, because we really want to know the whole story and we have confidence that we're not going to be overwhelmed by it. Mm, You know, That's uh the helper as a therapist. We know that it can't be pushed down. It has to come out. And with trauma, it can't come out too quickly because then that will overwhelm the system and they'll shut down again. So it has to be done very sensitively. And we can tune into the body to find the right pace. Someone might say, no, that's okay. I'm going to just tell you what happened. And But then you notice something in their body that they've tightened their whole body. They're not breathing or they're talking really fast or they're not looking at you. All kinds of physical signs that you need to say, you know, I want to hear the story. But right now, will you just stay for a moment and take a breath and just notice what's happening in your body? And they'll go, oh, a breath. Oh, I totally forgot about breathing. You go, Yeah. It's really hard to breathe. I, I, I just feel something really tight right in here. And they'll put their hand right around their diaphragm. And I'll go, yeah, but just keep your hand there. Yeah, what's your hand saying to that tightness in your body? I guess my hand's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm good. So just listen to that tightness. So with my voice and with my guidance, I'm, I'm helping the person be at a pace where healing can happen. So I developed over time, I started out with just a few, like a one day workshop, how to bring the body more into IFS. And then it became three days. And then it became a week long retreat to give people the chance to really kind of re-embodied themselves, you know, and really listen to their bodies as a sign, both for self-energy as a way to access their self-energy but also a way to access parts of them that maybe couldn't show up any other way. So out of that, I wrote the book that you named, Somatic Internal Family Systems.
0: That's a great answer to basically the next place that I wanted to go, which is what is sort of the purpose or the value of incorporating somatic techniques. And when we say the word somatic, that's just a word that comes from the word for soma, which just means body. So somatic means relating to the body and somatic psychology is Any of many different forms of psychology that bring together both kind of conventional, quote unquote, more cognitive, fast processing, word oriented, or even sort of the more psychoanalytic approaches, which, again, tend to live in a more kind of highly cognitive state, particularly in terms of practice in the clinical space, and then bringing that together with these kind of more body oriented approaches. And I just want to tell a really quick story to kind of reinforce one of the things that you are saying here, Susan. If you've been listening for a while, you might know that I have a dance background. I reference it sometimes. And I've done a bunch of different kinds of dancing since I was around 17, 18 years old. And one of the forms that I started in was ballroom, and particularly this form of ballroom called International Style Standard, which sounds very formal and fancy. But really, it's just like the dances like waltz and foxtrot, all of that kind of stuff. And one of the things that the followers particularly in the dance have to do is they have to achieve this like pretty extravagant body position where if you ever watch a video of very high level ballroom dancers the follower typically a woman though that's increasingly changing which is great but the follower kind of bends their body backwards into this very elongated position where essentially the leader is standing kind of straight and poised and the follower is really branching off of them and what happens in the training process is that it's not good for the body it's not really like safe for somebody to immediately go into that position. It's very vulnerable for your back. People can hurt themselves, It's a whole thing. So people are kind of slowly coaxed into this position. And then really, really interesting, something often happens, particularly if you're a more teenager or an adult woman who's moving into this position for the first time. When they finally actually get there into the full expanded space, often people will start to cry there is almost always an emotional response that is associated with actually opening up into the kind of size and shape that you need to be in to achieve this position for the aesthetic demands of the dance. And the first time that I saw that happen as like an 18-year-old, I was kind of like, what the heck is going on here? And then many, many years later, after learning all of this mental health and self-help and Bessel van der Kock's work with like The Body Keeps the Score and all of that whole territory... I gained an increasing appreciation for the way in which our emotions can really live in the body. And sometimes we can have these very intense releases of energy or expression or emotionality because the body has been used in a certain kind of way or been moved into a different physical state. Uh, One of the phrases is character armor that's used in IFS pretty regularly and other kind of therapeutic modalities. So yeah I would love to bring you back in here Susan but that's just kind of like my little story reinforcing what you were saying a moment ago
1: oh I love that for us yeah I could just sort of see your eyes light up as you as yeah. you spoke about the dancing <laughs> but that was a wonderful story and I just thought about you know because you were talking about this um, being well is really finding practical things that we can do and there's something so. I haven't even actually named the five practices that I've incorporated into somatic IFS, which is awareness, which we've already talked about, right? And breath, Uh which I also named a moment ago. And then they're kind of sequential. So it's awareness and then breath and then resonance, which is really gets us into the relational realm, which is like in the dance, like you're resonating with your partner, right? Mm -hmm. And then movement, which is what you gave a beautiful example of movement. And Mm. then finally touch. So each of those practices lead to embodied self-energy. And each one of them is held by the other. So they're somewhat interdependent, but also standalone. And your beautiful story about the dancing, which illustrates that movement practice. And by the way, I add an adjective to each of the practices. So I have somatic awareness, which as you say, it's pertaining to the body. And usually I think of it as subjective, not an objective awareness, because we know how to objectify our bodies, but this is tuning into our own moment by moment, subjective experience of our bodies, somatic awareness, and then conscious breathing. Again, breathing is something we do And most of the time, 95% of the time, are not even aware that we're breathing. But luckily, it's something that happens automatically and we don't have to, right? But then, you know, the breathing, as we bring consciousness to the breathing, we're aware that that both helps us go inside more, more deeply, but also connects us with the outside world. We follow that and the reason why breathing is at the heart of most contemplative spiritual Mm -hmm. traditions because it Mm -hmm. really helps us go deeper into our own spiritual beingness but then also connects us with a wider world as well but both somatic awareness and conscious breathing helps us establish a vertical alignment kind of almost like a lightning rod so it gives us stability which allows us then to move into the horizontal realm of relationship which is resonance where we begin to resonate with each other Mm -hmm. and often that resonance is I'm going to get to movement in a moment because I, I just love what you talked about, about the opening up you know, of the body and the tears.
2: Yeah.
0: But
1: I, I kind of have to go through this order with the resonance. Yeah, please. Yeah, it be really being about entering the realm of relationship where we understand each other a lot with words, but there's 80% at least of the communication going on that's nonverbal and it's energetic. I always do this sort of sideways figure eight, you know, infinity symbol <laughs> when I start talking about relationship, because that is really, yeah. I think, the, the movement of a healthy relationship, you know. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: so anyway, so in terms of practical, when you begin to get overwhelmed on a relational level, come back to these first two practices of just connecting with the earth, because each of these practices is connected with an element. So somatic awareness is connected with earth, so we get grounded we just feel our feet on the floor. We feel our seats on the chair. We just let our energy come down because when we're upset, the energy goes up. So we just, Mm, we're aware mm -hmm. of that and we just invite it to come back down. Yeah. And then the breath also is very calming, you know, calming our, our autonomic nervous systems just with every exhale. So focusing a bit, if you know you're kind of like getting cranked up, you just, just breathe out. And that It might take 10, 15 minutes. It might just take a breath or two, but it it might take an hour. But at some point, our nervous systems calm down just simply by noticing that we're breathing and letting the exhale be a little bit longer than the inhale. So then we are maybe more in a state to go back into that relationship that was getting us all upset. We have something we have that connection with above and below with the conscious breathing. Of course, it's obviously connected with the air element. So we're connected with the earth and the air. And then I associate water with relationship, you know, the fluid nature of just the, the connection. Mm-hmm. So that can take us to the realm of movement, which I say mindful movement, because although there are therapies and I'm sure they've helped a lot of people that just say, you know, you've got a lot of stuff stuck in you, just go ahead and pound, you know, pound your heart's intent. And that can be valuable. But in somatic IFS, I emphasize the mindfulness, like, so yeah, hit one time, or even feel the desire to hit, just feel like, let your fist tighten up, or let your hand raise up to a certain, and feel how much you want, and how strongly you'd want to just hit that pillow. And then just notice, like, where does that take you? What part does it reveal to you? But back to this beautiful example of the, the follower gradually coming to a place where it was her body was willing, his or her body, I guess we could say, was willing to open up. And so the front body, there's like a front body and a back body, right? And the back body shortening while the front body is lengthening.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And gradually coming to a place where they're more comfortable, able to be you know, fluid and graceful and open with their front body with so long. And then the tears come and, and like you say, at 18, you're like, what's going on here? What? what?" But then, (laughs) then you, you came to just sort of, again, bring our curiosity to that. Like, what is this? This is unusual. Why, what, what is this? And why would that be? Mm. Movement can also reveal the parts like your, your partner who opened up to such a Mm, degree that the mm -hmm. tears just wanted to flow, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, thank you for that beautiful story for us.
0: Yeah. I thought it was a great summary of everything that I was saying there in much more intricate detail related to IFS and somatic IFS. And what really stood out to me while you were talking was this idea to say it in a maybe a slightly fanciful way, basically an idea of unification, where you are becoming a whole and complete compilation of parts, where there's a sense of unity, there's a sense of bringing together. You were talking about with these various practices, you know, first we We find the air, then we find the earth, then we find the horizontal plane, the interaction between the people. And inside of that, when all of our different parts feel seen and valued and appreciated and respected in their job and their role and what they're trying to accomplish for the person, it allows the whole organism to move into more of the experience of unity, which is, for most people, very pleasant and fulfilling and you know, maybe self energetic to put it a certain kind of way, uh, way of being.
2: Yeah,
1: that's right. It moves into more unity. Yeah. Another analogy is like, in a way, our systems are like a symphony and different parts taking a different instrument. Mm-hmm. And the self is like the conductor and, you know, providing the sheet music. And also, you know, holding up the wand and talking, now we're all going to begin together. And they might say, okay, the horn section needs to kind of tone it down a little bit and we need to hear more from the strings. And we need, you know, so the self is sort of listening and guiding and recognizing that every part has a role to play, but it needs some guidance. And sometimes they need healing and sometimes the part needs a bit more education or, you know, but Mm. the essence of this model is to really restore the parts to their original preferred roles. Mm. So, for example, a part doesn't want to restrict us or constrict our lives. It's just doing that to keep us safe. And once it realizes that it doesn't have to do that, then it can reestablish the role that it was really born to do. And then in a way, our whole lives, we can find the path that we're really here to do you know so yeah we have a more unified harmonious collaborative system
0: i would love to as we're wandering toward the end here give people something kind of practical that they could potentially do on their own time to walk through some experience of these different things you've already given a lot of very practical material in terms of being the five practices that you already listed of awareness and breathing resonance movement touch as well as the kind of model as a whole, the role of the different parts. Ideally, people can, of course, work with a therapist to uncover this stuff more, an IFS therapist, even a somatic IFS therapist. But we know that statistically, most people, and maybe even most people listening, I don't know, will actually never go in to see a therapist. So we want to try to give people tools that they can use to improve their lives kind of on their own time or in maybe a different sort of setting. And early in the book, you walk through this sort of procedure of six Fs that a therapist can use with a client in order to work with the more protective parts of the system. And I would love to just kind of walk through that with people real quick and how you'd go through that with a hypothetical client that was having some challenge.
1: That's a great idea. As I was listening to, I was actually thinking, yeah, this might be a good time to talk about the success. And,
0: yeah, great.
2: and that's
1: exactly what you introduced. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're definitely, we're resonating for us. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. and it's really true that this work mm-hmm. really can be done on your own. Sometimes people are having really you know deep, embedded kind of hardcore pretty extreme trauma they may only get so far with it but you can get really far with it too mm-hmm. in a way that can just bring you more safety more peace in your life more functionality in your life any one of these particularly you know like I mentioned just the somatic awareness being and grounding and the breathing that's already been like one of the practical things but going to the Fs. The first, and they're named this way, just because sometimes when we're kind of all in a tizzy, we may not be able to remember them. And the words that begin with F can help us remember them. And the first one is just find the part. And actually, even before that, I want to just back up a moment and just say that one of the really empowering and healing things about the IFS model that drew me to it is instead of walking around feeling horrible about yourself because you are angry or you're frightened or you're selfish or you're, you know, any of the things we can judge ourselves for just to say a part of me, you know, and that part is taking over right now. So part of me is scared. And we can do that with the other people too. Like my partner is angry. And then you could just to, just to see what switches there. So a part of my partner is angry. So there's just a part of them that is blended with them right now. That part, that angry part is taking over. And it seems like that's all they are. that's true. It's, that's what appears. It seems like that's all that they are, but just even remembering that that's just a part of me. And it's like a cloud covering the sun. And maybe there's ways that, you know, something we can do to help that part back off a little bit. So the first Jeff is find the part. So, okay. So, um, you know, just going with the frightened part, for example. Yeah. So, Oh, I'm frightened. I'm frightened. And they go, Oh, well, let me try to find this frightened part. Hmm. And it might be that it shows up as like I said before as an image or as a sensation or as something in the body. Okay. And since I'm doing somatic, i felt also say, oh yeah, my stomach tightens up and my breath is kind of shallow. Okay. So this is where the part shows up in my body. So find the part, focus on it. I'll oh, focus on it. Well, I didn't really want to focus on, it. I wanted to like, you know, I wanted to ignore it. I don't like, I don't like feeling frightened, but okay. Could I focus on this part? All right. Well, I feel it in my body. I feel it is tightness. Yeah, okay. And I can also feel it stopping my breathing a bit. So we we'll just focus on that fear. It's interesting. Okay, it even begins to change a little bit as I focus on it, but you know, maybe it doesn't. Then the next F is flesh it out, which is kind of a way of saying, what else is there besides a tight stomach? What else is there that this part might want me to know about other than a tight stomach? And so if I just stay with that, and kind of get curious about what else is there to this fear other than my body tightening up. Maybe I hear words or sense, you know, some like, oh, don't go there. Don't go there. Something bad could happen. Oh, okay. So then I just stay curious about that. So it's the beginning of flesh it out. Is there more you can show me? Maybe I begin to get an image, a picture of maybe a memory of something bad that happened when I was about to do this thing. Oh, okay. I get why you'd be frightened because that was pretty scary. You were only eight years old and you had to stand up in front of 200 people and do something. It's like, whoa, no wonder you're scared. Yeah. And then there's that question. How do you feel? How do you feel towards that part? Well, yeah, I feel really compassionate towards that eight year old, you know, and I'm actually curious to get to know her better. And I feel confident that I can help her. I'm not quite sure how I can help her, but I do believe I. You know, I'm just going to hang in there with her, and I know something mm, good's going to uh-huh. happen because it always does. You know, and I have the clarity that this isn't all of me. It's just a part of me that's frightened. Mm, uh-huh. So there's find, focus on it. Sometimes that's all you need. But then, what else do you want me to know? You know, flesh it out a little bit more. Get it to know. You know, like someone shows up to your door, knocking on the door. You know, Who are you? Let me know. Well, what is it that you do for a living? And what do you want for me? And, you know, so, so it's like that, like just opening up to flesh out the, the part. And then how do I feel towards it? At some point, I'm going to ask myself if I want to get rid of it. That's another part of me. So I ask that part that wants to get rid of the fear to stand aside, just relax a little bit. It's going to go. Okay.
2: Mm.
1: And then I'm like, yeah, I really do. I really do want to get to know why this part's coming up right now. And it shows me this thing that happened when she was eight. And then I bring my compassion to her and I say, you know, then it's find out what the part wants you to know. What was so scary about that? What did you, what did you then begin to tell yourself about the world? What did you begin to tell yourself about yourself? What did you begin to do? in response to that painful event. So that's how we can work with, you know, most everybody with very deep wounds can do those steps of finding a part, focusing on it, asking how you feel towards it, which is beginning to separate out the part from you, which is the essence of this model. There's you, yourself, which is in every single one of us. There might be people listening go, yeah, the rest of you might have a self, not me. And that's just never (laughs) been true. You know, it's like, that's just what a part says. That's the voice of a part. And you just say to the part, I hear you. I get it. You think I don't have self. Maybe we just haven't found it yet. But what happens for you when I tell you, you know, I know myself is there. We just haven't uncovered it yet. Yeah. So find, focus, flesh out. How do you feel towards it? Find out what the part wants you to know. And then oftentimes it can lead to, the pain, and then you can just start again with find the part with all the pain, and then you can focus on that, and, and you know just try to breathe through it. You know, just really try to stay with it, and just let it know it's, it's okay. I'm here. I'm here with you. It's okay. I know you're scared. You know, so we just can always bring that self energy, and you know if it gets to be too much, just put a bookmark in it and go find some pleasant, helpful distraction. <laughs> you know go dancing. Yeah, go dancing. Hey, go dancing, (laughs) sing,
0: whatever. But it's a great process. I've used it myself, both formally and informally, Uh, generally informally, where I'm having those moments that I was talking about earlier, where you just kind of get caught in the process. And all of a sudden, here you are running through this practice. And it is a very, very powerful practice. It's been a very useful one for me in my life. And it's helped me develop a little bit more attention, a little bit more awareness, a little bit at a time of all of those little different bits and pieces and parts that kind of make up the constellation of the self. And at least in my experience, the more that I've become aware of these parts, the better that I have felt as a whole person. So I think it's a wonderful practice. Susan, before I let you go today, is there anything else that you'd like people to know about? Any other work you're doing? Any offerings you have? Go ahead.
1: You know, at the moment, I'm having trouble keeping up with the demand, <laughs> with the requests.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would imagine.
1: I didn't realize that the time had come mm. for somatic IFS. I was writing my book and thinking, well, maybe 30 people will read it. And, <laughs> you know, it's just been amazing yeah. how many people have read the book. And I am I do have a website. Of course, I'd be delighted if you read my book, <laughs> Somatic Internal Family Systems, where I describe these Five practices and and give a lot of examples of how it's helped people. And also each chapter has exercises that you can do yourself. I am offering right now, they're full, but some in-person retreats. And I'm also offering some online programs that are content-wise the same as the in-person retreats just done virtually. I trust that if something works and is helpful, it's going to grow. And I'm just doing my part to try to fertilize that And you just doing this podcast for us and offering this particular podcast to people, I just, again, want to thank you for it because it just feels like a lovely collaboration that we've done.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Susan. I I really appreciate it. Again, I think that your work is really fantastic. I think IFS in general is fantastic. I think that your collaboration in terms of a more somatic approach with IFS is profoundly useful for a lot of people. Again, the book is Somatic Internal Family Systems Therapy. There will be a link to it in the description of today's podcast. And just thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. This has been really lovely.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: So today I had a great time speaking with Susan McConnell about internal family systems therapy. As we explored during our conversation, IFS is a model of therapy that recognizes that while we might experience ourselves as being one unified self most of the time, we all have these different characters, different parts of ourselves running around inside of our heads. There are different aspects of us that come forward during different kinds of situations. And those aspects serve as a kind of constellation of self that we can improve our relationship with over time. Some common parts that most people tend to have include more defensive parts, like managers that take on this preemptive, protective role. They influence the way a person interacts with the external world, and they're often highly organizational in nature. Then we have our exiled parts. These are the parts of us that don't necessarily lie inside of our conscious awareness, and they're often parts that split off or are born from trauma, often the trauma that's experienced in childhood. These parts are isolated from the self, and when they do come forward, it's often a painful experience for us they have a lot of painful emotions that are commonly associated with their emergence. So these other parts work to shield us from them. These might be parts that try to divert our attention away from the exile's hurt and shame, which can lead to impulsive or inappropriate behaviors, including things like overeating, drug use, or even violence. And one thing IFS work is commonly aimed at, is unifying all of these parts as one healthy self. This includes bringing the more exiled parts back into relationship with the whole. Susan's work in particular focuses on somatic IFS. Somatic just means relating to the body. And somatic psychology is any form of psychology that brings together more conventional and more body-oriented approaches. Susan in particular has this five-practice model of somatic IFS, That includes somatic awareness, conscious breathing, radical resonance, mindful movement, and attuned touch. These phrases might sound a little bit fanciful, maybe even a little woo, who knows. But for me, why I really like them is that they provide this really clear map. And once you get into it, we're just talking about awareness of the body, awareness of your breath, the feeling relationship with another person, and then the ways in which movement and touch can bring us back into a fuller relationship with ourselves. Toward the end of the conversation, we walked through the six Fs. This is kind of a map that allows IFS therapists to work with their clients and identify the protector parts that are defending the system, that are defending those more vulnerable exiled parts. This process includes finding the part, Then sometimes a person might choose to focus on the part and flesh it out even more. Then the therapist typically asks the client, or you can just ask yourself in this example, if it's self-directed, how you feel toward the part. What are the emotional associations that you have with the part? Do you like it? Do you dislike it? Are you comfortable with it? Are you uncomfortable with it? And then the therapist or the person, again, if this is self-directed, attempts to befriend the part attempts to get on the same team as the part. And that really allows the part's defenses to go down. And when that happens, we can address the part's fears. And when we do this effectively, often the part moves back into a different role. It takes on the role that it was intended to take on in the system, rather than this more maladaptive role that it's been forced into based on our painful experiences. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I really enjoyed the conversation with Susan. I'm a big fan of IFS therapy. I think it's profoundly useful and it's really helped shape how I think about people and how I think about myself in general, including just having a lot of empathy for the different voices that can kind of appear inside of our head, the more self-critical ones, the more self-caring ones, and not beating myself up as much about the more self-critical ones. Like those voices appear too, And they have a job to do. There's something that they're trying to accomplish, some negative experience that they're trying to defend against. And when I can be kind of caring and even compassionate towards those more painful parts, wow, a lot of my internal space really just opens up and it becomes a lot more comfortable to be me. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review it on the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. Also, hey, if you're listening and you're not subscribed, please subscribe. That's another thing that really does help us out over time. Also, I'd like to remind you about what has been a major project for me over the last couple of months. It's the Life After COVID Summit. It's airing from May 21st to May 23rd. And I'm talking with just an incredible group of experts about how we can all prepare ourselves for this new normal that we're going to be entering over the next six months, year, 18 months, who knows? There has been so much to reckon with over the last year. There is so much to prepare for over the next year. There has been a lot of upheaval. And to me, the summit is just a place where people can come together and access some really top quality information from some amazing people. If you'd like to attend the summit, it's online. It's free. It is very easy to attend. I have a link to it in the description of today's podcast. You can check it out there. It's also just lifeaftercovidsummit.net. We couldn't get .com, so we had to go with .net, but if you go to that URL, it'll redirect you to the Summit's page, and you'll be able to learn all about it. Again, thanks so much for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I'll talk to you soon.